0: And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we make sense of the borderlands of digital media, technology, and memes. Today, electrical engineering graduate student at MIT and 2017 College Jeopardy winner Lily Chin shares the story of becoming the spiciest neem lord and walks us through her outstanding new paper, How to Survive a Public Faming. Before we begin... We're thrilled to announce our second Meme in the Moment Festival on Wednesday, October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern at Caveat New York City. In the next installment of New York City's Festival of Memes, we'll explore digital culture from an esoteric perspective, from internet occultism and the rise of conspiracies to how we cope with digital death. Together, we're strengthening our cultural immune response to memes in order to help us separate signal from noise, protect against extremist dog whistles, and create healthier communities, both online and off. Speakers include Garbage Day's Ryan Broderick, NBC's Callan Rosenblatt, Insider's Rachel E. Greenspan, The Verge's McKenna Kelly, digital culture writer Moises Mendez II, cultural strategist, Matt Klein, and will be hosted by Dr. Jamie Cohen. Tickets are available now at caveat.nyc or at digitalvoid.media. We look forward to seeing you there. Lily, thank you so much for joining us today. You recently published a piece that I love, How to Survive a Public Faming, Understanding the Spiciest Meme Lord via the Temporal Dynamics of Involuntary Celebrification. Can you please walk us through the story about how you originally ended up on College Jeopardy and the birth of the spiciest meme lord?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I guess like to start even from way back is that. Uh, I was an undergrad at MIT doing electrical engineering and computer science, but I was also sort of minoring in comparative media studies. So questions about the internet and how identity is formed online was pretty forefront in my idea. Uh, so I did quiz bowl in high school and I was pretty good at trivia. So my RA was on the show and was like, hey, everybody should try out. And I'm like, sure, that'd be fun. So I did a couple tryouts, went to New York, uh, finally got on the show my senior year and then just played Jeopardy. It was a lot of fun. And there's this tradition for having putting a joke answer if you already know that you're going to win. So just kind of uh, whiffing on the last question. And so my friends spent a lot of time watching meme videos. At the time, I think it was like, it's like the B movie, but every time X, Y happens instead. So that was on the forefront of my mind. And I was like, oh, I'll just give them a shout out. I'll put like spicy memes. And then the question ended up being a who is question. So I changed it to who is the spiciest meme lord. So in the process of doing this, I forgot I was on national television and that it wasn't just going to be my friends watching it, but it was going to be everyone <laughs> in the, in the country watching it. So I didn't realize how big this was going to get. And yeah, so, so with like at first I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And then it's like, this feels weird and is like tickling the uh, critical analysis side of my brain and i literally have in my like journal notes at the time of like don't write a paper about this don't write a paper about <laughs> this <laughs> And then fast forward four years later, I kept working on this in my spare time as a robotics graduate student, and I'm so happy that the paper is finally out and uh, is able to be discussed.
0: Yeah, and I'm so grateful that you wrote it, even though you basically promised yourself that you wouldn't. I don't, it's that's amazing to me. But you write that you meant to signal or message to your friends at home by using the spiciest meme lord once you knew you had won, but you ended up speaking to an entire internet community who was tuned in and kind of co-opted your likeness as a meme. Um, So what was it like in the days after the episode aired and how did you feel your life change in the physical world outside of the internet?
1: Yeah. So I I think something that's interesting is because it was associated with the college jeopardy, I already sort of had a community uh, around me. So I definitely was like, Big big man on campus for even even now like I went on a beach trip with their other graduate students and they were like wait like you're Lily are you that Lily and I'm like it's been four years like why are you asking me about this so I I didn't tell MIT actually beforehand that I was going to go on it because again I. Part of it is just like my immigrant background, but I didn't think that going on Jeopardy was as big a deal as like now I know it is. My parents didn't even go to the filming because they were just like, "Oh yeah, whatever." <laughs> like, so, so I would say that was interesting of like being like, "Oh right," like TV is a is a big deal because I don't watch TV as like a millennial, right? I now have a pair of bunny ears to to watch Jeopardy, <laughs> but I think so that was one thing is like a very local fame. Uh, and that was sort of the only one that I was preparing for, especially among a friend group. But then as not even the last episode, but as the tournament sort of progressed, uh because Jeopardy was such a big deal, like I saw like MIT use my image. Of course Sony was using my image. I signed the whole contract to give them all the image rights for that. But it was just right, all of the communities I had affected, my high school, the library job I had just started, like wanted more and more of of catching catching in on my on my rising star and so th- there's kind of levels of like my immediate local community the communities that I had been a part of and then to this kind of global community and those were the sort of layers I was I ended up interacting with and
0: you began to interact with each of these layers very quickly uh, as you describe in in your article you, the taping took place over two days but Jeopardy itself aired over two weeks and. Can you walk us through how what you write to be internet-based temporalities clash with a television show's temporality and how you perceive the difference between the two mediums?
1: Yeah. So I would say that I'm borrowing heavily from Anna Jerslev's work on celebrity temporalities, where she talks about more traditional micro-celebrities like Instagram influencers or YouTube makeup stars and how... There's this traditional celebrity of slowness and inaccessibility, right? You don't expect that if you write George Clooney that he's going to write you back or even see your letter in the first place, right? But whereas in this new sort of micro celebrity re- realm, there's this idea of accessibility. Uh, there's a lot of talk about parasocial relationships of people feeling a connection, like they're, you're, you're the friend of this Twitch star or whoever. And so because I'm in this weird position of being on this traditional old media, I guess, of television, and they're desperately trying to interact with the, the youth, the 18 to 35 age demographic. That's very different from Jeopardy's 65-year-old age demographic. But it requires them to sort of uh, translate their usual systems of film the television show, edit it, uh, prepare for distribution, contact uh, newspapers um, in order to get the sort of media hype around the thing. Whereas this can happen very organically on, say, Twitter, where because it's coming from the bottom up, if everyone sort of has an interest in, say, like Bean Dad, then suddenly this goes like to the top of the charts and like people are actually seeing this things. So being caught in the middle of this meant that I didn't have the distance um that like traditional celebrities have of like an agent of this sort of infrastructure that is intentionally designed to create distance. But I also didn't have any control over the rise of my um, public faming right? I didn't create content and then people were responding to it. I didn't have a specific channel that I could respond to people on. People are just sort of taking my image and running with it. Partly also because you don't think about asking for consent of, say, Grumpy Cat when you share a Grumpy Cat meme, right? And and so there's no reason for people to think about the person behind it. They just see sort of this image, think it's funny, pass it on. They don't think about if they Photoshop like. John Travolta and Joe Biden kissing me that like, I will eventually see this and be like, love to be digitally sexually assaulted, you know? And so that's that's kind of the idea of these two temporalities being caught in the middle between them and really not having the tools to respond to either of them.
0: Yeah. And what really strikes me about not being able to respond is like the paralysis. Like you went on television, you wrote who is the spiciest meme lord. Then a few weeks later, your life changes and you don't change and you write about this gap between the producers of Jeopardy's understanding of memes and digital culture uh, and what was popular in 2017, like truly popular, (laughs) popular in 2017, like the B movie. And then what they kind of, Thought was popular. And I guess, I guess like today that would be called like it, like their understanding is, um, I was going to say Chuggy, but that word is already outdated. So, um, <laughs> but like all of the promotional materials in 2017 were created from like 2010 through 2013. And you write that Redditors called this intergenerational pandering, but it did something really like deeply profoundly upsetting. Uh, it like made you lose faith in memory and it gave you anxiety. Like what influence do you feel these producers had on creating this reality?
1: Yeah, I, I I think like part of it is that actually going to Culver City and being on like the Sony Studios Jeopardy st- sound stage is like wild. Cause this this um stage that you've seen on TV, that's very flat, right? Like you've got the flat board, you've got the head-on presentation of the contestants, and like the only so like profile view that you get is of whoever is the host at the time, Trebek at the time. And so actually taking those sort of flat shots and constructing them into an actual space was so wild. And that's not alone like the production schedules of there's five shows in a single day. So when most, again, when most people see it, it's sort of split up over a week, but actually you're just five minutes get changed. It's a new day. And so the, the rate of that kind of production and you're unfamiliar with it. Whereas the people who are sort of the, the contestant coordinators, the staff, like they're, they've been doing this for like 35 years. And so it's a difference in experience for that. You have no media training for how to do interviews. You have no, uh, sense of how to handle your public image online. So there's a, there's a certain level which like, the production company could do more to sort of prepare you for this, even for like the traditional thing. But there's also no guidance for how to be it on the internet, right? Like you were talking about how it's a little choogy. I guess this this is starting to get slaying outside of my comfort zone, but it's a little bit right. Like they don't, they don't know how to handle the internet side. They might have like 30 years of experience of handling the traditional mainstream media side, but they, they have no guidance Um, the only social media guidance guidelines that we got were of don't spoil the results of the episode beforehand. Only like, I think the year after I came out, uh, they started saying to people of like, Hey, you might receive a lot of harassment, um, especially the women contestants. But I got none of that advice. I only got this from the women of Jeopardy Facebook group. Um, that's kind of this contestant, uh, network of peer people who have been on there. And it's like, hello, welcome to the alumni network. Two factor all your accounts. Like, yeah. And they literally linked to, uh, Zoe Quinn's like crash overrides thing about how to like avoid doxing and all these things because it's serious of like, I got letters sent to my parents' house, um, from fans and I'd never put that address out anywhere. And so I didn't receive any media training from MIT. Like none of these institutions that were large and had this power ever gave me any sort of training or backup. And so I was really forced to be like, not only like having my identity out there for comments, but also having to serve as my own agent to to manage these interactions. And obviously that's, that's very twisted and intertangled. Yeah. I think
2: yeah. The, you're bringing up like an amazing point about the, the intersection between IRL and digital that like, we not only do you not get media, media trained for something that's like, obviously a very popular television broadcast that's like national, but like, there's no after effect of the unknown that comes from this too. Like you you were talking about the translation between like the audience, but you, and you mentioned in the paper about this spike on the Ngram on Google and how there's meme Lord shows up and the word it's alone. You, you, inadvertently introduced a a new vocabulary term to an audience that may or may not have any sense whatsoever. I still say meme Lord today to Gen Z or millennial audiences. And they're like, what's that word? And it's amazing that that comes up. So then where did the Snapchat filter come from? And this looks like, does that made for you? Or was that like... Somebody made that and that became something.
1: Yeah, that was um, Sony Pictures slash Jeopardy making this. Um, it was like a geo filter yeah. for MIT campus. So if you were on MIT, like when the final episode showed up, you could take a picture wow. that had the like, you know, Doge and double rainbow stuff. I don't think anybody used it other than my friends being like, what is this?"
2: <laughs> did you get any feedback that you using that term? Like, was that beyond the meme itself? Like, did anybody say, you know, you've you've. What is this term? What is this word like bro- bridging that gap?
1: Yeah, it's actually um immediately after I won, I, like put me in front of this thing, said like, OK, explain, explain what this is. And so that's B-roll footage that is on their YouTube channel which is my explanation of like what meme lord is and like it's 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 uh i I appreciate the youtube comments on that video because they're like clearly lily does not want to be explained (laughs) Uh, but has to for the 65 year old grandmas in the audience yeah exactly
2: i have another Uh, meme question so about the format so because you had written on the screen because your final answer was part of the image itself it changes the way that the shareability becomes. So you become a screen grab type of meme. And that screen grab isn't your international, your instant faming or public faming that happens is as an occurrence of a, an established format. In other words, the text is already placed there. It wasn't like origin memes that were like bad luck Brian or scumbag Steve who were <laughs> candid images or placed images on the internet. Yours was a, a, in a setting with text on it. How do you feel like that changes the experience for people sharing you and your image?
1: I mean, I'm grateful for it because it means that there was a lot less remixability that you could do of the image, right? Like, the image itself requires a lot of context. It requires you to know what Jeopardy is. It requires you to know like why saying who's the spiciest meme word is funny. Um And if you watch sort of the video that's on YouTube, it's just full of a bunch of Europeans being like, I don't get it. She got the question wrong and doubled her money. Like they, they're just very confused. So I think that's also why the photo edits that did exist are mostly of like alterations to my body, like f- turning my head into a clam and stuff like that. But I, th- I think more of the mimetic uh, aspect of it has been people using the spiciest meme lord to describe themselves as like a username as kind of just like a phrase that's sort of funny, especially if you know the context. I also think that I never got to have this, but there was a beer from some brewery in Colorado that they just like named the spiciest meme lord. Uh, Because I thought it was funny. But yeah, that's another thing of just like the phrase itself rather than the image was what got the viral appeal.
0: I want to kind of look at the next part of your article where you write that uh, the audience tried to claim your identity for themselves, um, compounding on the damage being done by Jeopardy's own narrative claiming. And you quote Senft in this and write, one part of micro-celebrity logics is that identity once believed to be a property of the bearer now belongs to the perceiver. And I think that's so, so important because it assumes this kind of audience ability to project their uh, preconceived bias and their stereotype and their politics back onto an image of, but not an image. It's it's a human being. And and in this case, it's you. So you follow by writing that political perspectives were projected onto you. How are political perspectives uh, projected onto what you call a blank symbol?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because um, so I won the college tournament in 2017. So memes in the political sphere were very prominent because of Pepe and like deplorables and things like that. And so like the... R slash the Donald hadn't been banned yet. And so they saw this aspect of memes in the mainstream and they are like, ah, oh, that, that's our girl, you know? Um, and so people also, I have a screenshot of someone being like, where does she say that she's a Trump supporter? And people are like, nah, nah, you'll, you'll get it if you think about it. So I think that is interesting of itself of just like, just purely signaling these subcultures, like can be tied to political beliefs. Um, I think more of the other like, political beliefs that I got tied to was just using my image as sort of an Asian American woman um and thinking about like what this must mean for my own politics or that like I'm a recent immigrant, all of these sort of ideas of the Asian as the perpetual foreigner and using this either to be like, oh, of course, like a C word is like won the tournament or something like that. Or it's, oh, look at, you know, these this examples of immigrant excellence. There's been the finals are totally of Asian Americans, uh, you know, immigrants make our country strong or something like that. And so I think for anyone who becomes a symbol in sort of the national conversation, there's sort of inevitably this, these casting of opinions, right? Like it's not just that this is, this is dates me. It's not that Justin Bieber is like, he, he's a human too, right? But like, people are like, people are putting their ideas onto him and saying like, oh, like clearly he's gay. This this really <laughs> dates me or like all of these things. But it's not like the comments are actually going to get to Justin Bieber and that he'll be affected by it. Right. Again, he's got this distance of celebrity. But because like, I don't know, maybe it's also like my fault for even trying to see what people are saying about me in the first place. But just seeing sort of those comments and like seeing how people use me as a symbol is... Um,
2: yeah, there's two years before this, before your event, there was a book that came out from John Ronson, the, the British uh, journalist. He wrote a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed," And it's kind of just a book of case studies, but he brings up an important point of what you were just talking about, which is what the projections are of the actual viewer. And you just bring up a point that I think is so amazing, which is that the odds of you seeing it are not part of the person's goal, it's more along the lines of their ability to project themselves onto you so that somebody else sees it and either feels something from that. And so that's where the public shaming comes from, which you bring up in the introduction of your, your paper. And his main case study, which is the same one that everyone uses for all of them, is the Justine Sacco story. This young woman who did an inappropriate text to her 74 followers before she getting on a uh, an airplane. And by the time she had landed, she had become a micro celebrity and lost her job and so on and so forth. And a lot of the shaming that occurred from that was a dig. It was a designed event almost to the point where somebody had purposely found it to create a spectacle from it. In reverse, you were on national television. The sh- I don't know if there was an intent for shame so much as micro-celebrity, as you mentioned, but I think what happens is that being in that public space, people's intent are for you to find those types of things and for you to search yourself. Did you feel a tension with your curiosity to see what people were saying and you're just your desire just never to know?
1: I would say that it's... I, I, so I guess part of um, – I read John Ronson's book and my title of the paper is actually kind of a play on this, uh, which is that instead of public shaming, it's a public faming.
2: Yeah. It's the opposite, right? Yeah. 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 And so
1: it's kind of – the point is that it's not necessarily the shame itself that causes this to be a traumatic experience, but it's the fact of just purely being in the public eye. Like just being perceived is, is harm. And I don't think that the people who wrote the things were ever intending for me to see it. There's a lot of people being like, oh my God, how do I contact Lily so I can ask her to be my girlfriend kind of things, right? And again, even though that's a pretty direct ask, that's not explicitly like I'm expecting her to go on Twitter and see this. There were some people who emailed me and messaged me on Facebook. And I think that was like a much more direct ask because also since that's in DMs, it's not like they were, they were doing this for everyone in the world to see. So it's it's kind of like, I guess, claiming your own identity in position to something that's in sort of the national conversation. And again, I guess that's where the harm from being publicly perceived comes from, is that the people who are saying like, oh my God, be my girlfriend are just saying like, I want to be a cool meme lord, question mark, like Lily is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's where that fame comes in. Rather than the idea of the victim of that, there's also this idea that you are have been elevated into a new space, but the trolls out there intend their intention is, uh, is to victimize is to, to create a victim. And, and so your conclusion, you're near your conclusion, uh, brings up your method, your, your interesting method of interacting with this, troll like behavior. Can you can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, I'd actually push back on the idea that it's purely trolls because I think I think it's also just like people honestly not realizing what it's like to be sort of uh to be commented on publicly and are not really understanding that like getting DMs from random people asking for money is not what I signed up for, right? So the the tool that I discuss is called radical reciprocity. And I want to make sure that it's not just, this is a term I made because I wasn't aware of the literature, but there's also terms called counter-shaming, which is just this idea of pushing back the public eye onto other people. And so this can be done either in the two temporalities- one is if I accept that I'm sort of a traditional celebrity, I have this distance, then I can say, oh, I have a platform, I can speak up and say my truth. And this is, you know, partly encouraged by uh, infrastructure like Reddit AMAs, but it all could be just be more like public protests or direct action like that. The thing that I found interesting was this for for the temporality of being online is to flip the script and say, like, I'm not I'm going to refuse to be publicly perceived or like be the object that you can put things onto. I'm going to give you a taste of what it feels like to be in the public eye. I got a lot of inspiration for this from a previous uh, Jeopardy College contestant who made a Twitter feed just uh, retweeting everybody who tweeted hate at her of like, oh, you're like too ditzy or you like buzz in too fast or things like that. And people got mad about it. People got mad that their tweets got included in this just in her Twitter feed. And of course, she she retweeted that too. But it really struck me because it, it was really funny to see all of these things like what normally were very hurtful comments individually and in aggregate, but then when just solely put into this format became really funny, very petty. Um, the other area where I used this technique was somebody kept DMing me on Facebook. And so at first I was just like, oh, I'm just going to block this guy after he sends me a dick pic. But then I remember reading somewhere that this, the the solution to this is not to just like ignore it, but to actually let this guy's friends and family know. So I, I messaged them and were like, hey, this guy's been harassing me for a while. Like, Here's what he did. And the responses were kind of disappointing of just like, oh, like, I'm sure he got hacked. Like, that can't possibly be him. And I was like, look, I'm from Boston. This guy's from California. The only way we'd meet is like if he reached out to me first. So it ended up that he blocked me (laughs) probably so that he could explain to his friends and family of like, hey, I don't know who this person is. It doesn't she doesn't come up when I search for her. So that's that's kind of like giving him a taste of like what it what it feels like of using if the same ease of connection that allowed him to Facebook message me can be used just as much for me to like look at what his networks are and to like put him in the spotlight. And I also write in the paper that you have to be careful of this because it starts becoming very close to the original aspect of public shaming, right? Like, I guess this could be framed as harassment of me, like, contacting his friends and family. So there needs to definitely be some more thought of this either radical reciprocity or counter-shaming of entering into sort of a vendetta state.
0: So I I want to kind of close this conversation and look at the future. You say that this is the only paper that you're going to write about memes, but where do you see this environment moving? And are are you thinking that this is an identity that you're going to continue to carry
1: indefinitely? Yes, because again, it's already been four years and people in my academic career are still asking me about this, right? and it's it seems like a sort of fun like party party thing right of like, oh, like did you know Jeopardy winner, and I think part of the reason I was writing this was to kind of one process these feelings, but two to sort of point to people about why I have mixed feelings of being known as the spiciest meme Lord, but I still have it on my website so that if people because people are googling me and I'm like okay i'm I'm the Lily Chen that you want, my friend Lily Chen actually got some harassment <laughs> because we were both uh, MIT students. Our names are very similar. And she had to make a public post being like, I'm not Lily Chin. Like that's somebody else, you know, I'm, I'm also sort of like mixed feelings about this because also in my public faming case, I actually won quite a bit of money from this. Um, it was a positive experience that people know me by. I've made academic connections from my status as a Jeopardy winner. And so I feel a little weird complaining about it sometimes because this is very different than, say, like Monica Lewinsky, who has talked about similar issues of being bullied and public shaming and stuff. And my reputation is very different from this action than than hers. Right. I think it's it is something that's just going to be carried with me but I think this paper is trying to push back on being solely defined by this
0: yeah yeah and it's it's a very important paper Have you thought or considered any solutions for people who inadvertently end up becoming a meme like what their very first step should be do you want people to like be able to reach out to you or do you think that they should like maybe take some time away from the internet or try to like deeply consider what that looks like do you think we need infrastructure for this and and I, I know that That you wish that you had institutional support, but for people who do end up becoming a meme in the future, uh, what what advice would you immediately offer?
1: Yeah, I think my paper is also a call for more institutional support, not just in directly like media training and things, but also academically. Um, I talk in my paper about how I was reading the literature on celebrity studies, and there was nothing for me. It was. Like event celebrities, cellatoids, like the, the case that I was in was very like, ah, they're not real celebrities. Who cares? Um, so I think the most important thing is probably to find, establish some sort of community because again, the women of jeopardy group was very helpful for me of just being able to process the details of harassment and sort of the lack of institutional support. I think that's hard because if you get famous, like say bad luck, Brian, it's unclear. Like, do I reach out to who made like, Clever raptor, right? Like, like this doesn't <laughs> really make too much sense. But there's sort of like more and more people who are getting this, like this mimetic nano fame just all of a sudden, right? And I think like even just like knowing what's going to happen is very, is very helpful. And I think like as people see, you know, Alex from Target, Ken Bone, all of these like mm-hmm. very small instances, uh, I can only hope that these stories help in understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like more and more happen every year. We had uh, Giorgio Angelini and Arthur Jones on to discuss what happened with Matt Fury and uh, and they documented it in Feels Good Man. But uh, to see what happened to Matt and like the physical reaction he had where he was having trouble getting off the couch because he felt responsible for creating Pepe that became the symbol of the alt-right. It was just like... It's a sobering feeling, and I imagine it must feel very, very lonely and isolating. So I, I love the recommendations. And Lily, where can people keep up with you? Um, what channels do you prefer people to engage with you on, if any?
1: Sure. I've been using my Reddit account as kind of the the account that I'll actually respond to people if they talk to me about Jeopardy! things. So that's... Uh, Username Rip and Pepperinos. Uh, I stream on Twitch, um, also under Rip and Pepperinos, underscores between Rip and Pepperinos.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time, Lily. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and share it on your favorite social media channel. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can write to us via our website's contact form at digitalvoid.media or reach out to us on social media. Tickets for The Meme in the Moment are now on sale at caveat.nyc or digitalvoid.media. Stay safe. Stay healthy
1: and we'll see you next week.